Hey, hey, hey! Welcome to Artistic Accomplices. I am your host, Eric Scott, and this is the podcast that's all about creative encouragement. I want to be that little voice that's in your ear encouraging you to make, to create, to do the things that you've been wanting to do. So let's dive into today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me once again for Artistic Accomplices. I'm Eric Scott, and yes, I know that I have been missing in action. Um, I do apologize for that. Things have just gotten really busy around here lately, and unfortunately, I've been kind of distracted and have not found the time to keep up with the podcast. It's just kind of amazing. I'm going to keep that story for a later episode, but I am back. And I am super, super excited because I interviewed an awesome artist, somebody that I had featured on my blog um, a while back, and I got to sit down with her and talk to her about her art, her making, and we had just an awesome, awesome conversation. Um, And so I'm really excited to bring my interview with with, uh, collage artist, encaustic artist, Crystal Neubauer. And Crystal lives in Illinois, just north of Chicago, very close to Wisconsin, and she has a studio in Racine, Wisconsin. And like I said, she's an awesome, awesome collage artist and an awesome encaustic artist, and we really kind of dive into a lot of things in this interview. So anyway, I hope that you are ready to to hear lots of pearls of wisdom and I hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with Crystal. All right so Crystal thank you so much for joining me today. I'm I'm really excited. I have never actually met you in person so it's really cool to kind of meet you over the computer. Yeah I'm really excited about it too to get to you know I just um started watching your your stencils class yesterday and I feel like you know you just feel like you get to know people online it's just remarkable you know to be able to see faces like this and and talk in person when we're not really in person (laughs) yeah it's it's amazing how far technology has come over the last few years and especially during the pandemic you know being able to kind of connect online has been pretty essential yeah it really has. So um, I always like to start out the the interviews kind of with with the artists kind of talking about their story, their journey. So how how did you get to where you are now? I mean, you can, you don't have to go into super long detail, but sort of what was your artistic journey? Well, um, it's kind of a similar journey when you break it down to like the the whatever you know the overview um as a lot of artists would have where um art has always been something that i have closely connected to um you know from a very young age uh school for me high school years especially was very difficult i came from a very dysfunctional family background and uh with you know an alcoholic father and and on that whole story it's it's kind of you know, familiar to a lot of people that I connect with because it's not uncommon 
but for me, um, it, it looked like avoiding home a lot and the places that I would connect um, that were constructive in my life was in the studio at school, the art studios and the art classes that I got to take in high school. My um, high school was a private university high school. And so I did get to take a lot of art classes as a high school student that um, that aren't usually available in the public school system. So that was a just a, a huge blessing for me that I didn't recognize at the time, but it was a, a tremendous escape and an outlet for me. Um, and then, you know, I wound up becoming a teen mom and my life took a little bit of a turn that it, um, wasn't expected. So eventually I just, I was working to support my family. I had um, three children total from, this, from that marriage and as a young mom in the workforce, just trying to do what I could to, to support my family and survive, I had completely forgotten any inclination of wanting to be an artist after school. That was my ultimate dream was to go to college. But you know, girls in my family system just weren't, um, weren't conditioned to think about college as being a real thing. So, um, so it was probably in my 30s, I had worked my way up in the career path I wound up taking, which was project management in the print industry. And um, I was in my 30s, I had three children who were, um, my youngest at that time was in fourth grade and my oldest was um, in high school. And so at that point, I remarried a man who had four children of his own. And for some reason, we thought that that would work out really well when we moved our seven kids into the same household. And, um, you know, in hindsight, it's always easier to see the big red warning flags. But the silver lining of that for me, um, it looked like an absolute breakdown in my life. I suddenly had this huge uh, responsibility with seven children under the same roof, ranging from first grade to to high school, almost senior, and then um, you know two full time working parents of uh, this conglomeration, and things got really stressful for me very fast, and it brought up some um, chronic illness issues that I hadn't been fully aware of, um, and so I kind of had a crash and burn experience. And in that crash and burn experience, it was art that kind of saved me. Um, and that is like this really broad explanation of what could take hours and hours <laughs> uh, to fill in the cracks. But you can well imagine, you know, the, the chaos and the turmoil and the dysfunction that was happening and how um, somebody at some point during that, I had I'd quit my job. I'd gone back to work a couple of times. My company was pretty great in letting me figure things out physically and emotionally. So they would offer me um, part-time work or, you know, just to help scale back to a point where I could manage the times that I needed to go back into the workforce. 
And in that period of time, a woman walked by my desk one day and handed me a copy of Somerset Studio Magazine. She, I didn't know her very well, but she, um, she just kind of walked past casually and looked at me and said, oh, I think you would enjoy this magazine and handed it to me and walked on. And when I opened it, sitting there at my desk, I had this visceral response to the point that I had to close it and put it away because I thought I was going to start weeping at my desk. It was like this recognition inside of something that had been missing and I hadn't even known it. It was like suddenly I knew there was an arm that I had been missing my whole life, you know, and, um, and suddenly there it was. And so when I got home and started to really dive in to what I was seeing in that magazine, it just lit a fire inside of me. And it was, of course, the art of collage that I was connecting to most. And in the, in the way that it was presented in Somerset Studio Magazine was this very lighthearted, whimsical fashion that enabled me to start exploring what this medium was in a very non-threatening way. So I had already been collecting all of these materials. I had no idea why. And suddenly I had an outlet for them. Um, and so I started connecting with other artists online once I got into looking at that medium. Um, what I found online as I started to explore and try to figure out, like, how do I do this? And, and who's doing this? And what are they doing with it? Um, I went to the bookstore. The only thing on the shelf at the time, aside from things like Somerset Studio Magazine, was a book I found by an artist named Claudine Helmet. And her book was called something like, um, I don't know, Collage Art Discovery. Um, and her style was using old photographs and maps and things um, and creating these very whimsical scenes by piecing them together with collage and painting you know, um, cartoon character-like bodies on vintage heads. So her, um, her book was my introduction, and I got online and tried to find her. And then I, I found this whole mixed-media world living on eBay, of all places. You know, we didn't have Etsy at the time. And um, it was in the days when Facebook was only for, collo or for collage st college students. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, and so people were actually selling their works on eBay, but there were also these groups on eBay for people who had common interest. And I joined um, several different mixed media type groups, um, started doing round robins with ATC cards. You're familiar with that format yeah. and, um, and really got connected to the mixed media world that way. Um, in that process, I was encouraged to start my own blog, and that's how we all kind of communicated with each other. We would do blog hops and things like that. So I started my blog in 2006, and I started immediately connecting to the fact that writing and collage were something that were, um, I guess, I feel like my part of my purpose or, you know, just what I was wired to do. Mm -hmm. And um, so it all just kind of evolved from there. Um, I did the really whimsical hats and butterfly wings on everything type of collage for about two or three years. 
it was a process. It was a period of time in my life. When I break my, my art timeline down, I call that period my, um, my I am a child of God phase, which meant that I learned that it was okay for me to play. Yeah. I had been so serious, uh, you know, for such a long time in a very dysfunctional way, trying to, re you know, trying to raise my children and do the right thing, doing lots of wrong things in the process when you don't know any better. But eventually, art kind of led me to this place of feeling like I was centering and grounding and discovering things about myself that I had not known yeah. before if it hadn't been for art. And I would get into the studio where there were absolutely no rules and um, no expectations. And I just would allow myself to play yeah. and explore and, and in a very childlike way. And eventually, um, behind all the little characters that I was creating with their uh, whimsical accessories, um, I started to really connect to the collage that I was creating as their background more and more. And, um, and soon it was magazines like American Craft and American Style, um, which were more of a fine art craft type magazines that were causing that same visceral response mm -hmm. that I had had early on with the Somerset Studio magazines. And I started to recognize that there was a fine art type of collage that I was feeling very drawn to at that point. So there was another season in my life where I shifted from that more whimsical style and started exploring again. And what did it look like for me to refine my style and grow in it? And, um, and all of that kind of led me to, you know, to the, down the path of teaching, workshops and and looking for gallery representation um it was a long process but basically that was that was what brought me to where i'm at today yeah, yeah. um so i'm just i'm kind of processing all that that you were talking about i think there's a lot of uh threads in there that i kind of want to pull at um i think the first one i kind of want to ask you about is you're talking about collecting i and i've heard you talk about this before that like you you were into collecting like papers and ephemera. What about sort of that, that old sort of vintage ephemera uh, that you use in your collage? What about that like draws you in? What, what, what attracts you to that kind of stuff? You know, to begin with, I think it was just um, a familiarity. Familiar being when I was a young child, um, even in spite of, you know, how much I, I do share that, my family system was dysfunctional. There were things that were very um, fun about my childhood. And one of them was my parents in, enjoyed going to, um, we, at the time we lived in a small town and we would go to the auctions on Friday nights. And they would be these big estate auctions with boxes and boxes of things. And, um, and I would get a little budget from my parents and I would be allowed to buy things too. And it was usually things that I could buy, you know, to use to play with my Barbie dolls. But a lot of the things that I bought would be um, things to make things, accessories and furniture and stuff for my Barbie dolls, 
or whatever it was that I was interested in at the time. And so when I started collecting papers and things as an adult, I think that that was the beginning, was the roots of just feeling familiar and feeling like a connection to my past in a positive way. Now I look at these papers, they all have their own individual histories and I call them fragments. And I discovered this in this organic way. I didn't set out with the intention of thinking each one of these little pieces of paper has its own story. And I'm going to connect all these stories to tell my own story. It just kind of happened organically that I started recognizing that that was what was happening. Yeah. And that these um, pieces of ephemera from disconnected people's past were illustrate were beautiful ways to illustrate the fragments that we carry inside of ourselves of our own lives. Mm -hmm. And um, what no matter what our background is, we have lots of stories. Um, by the time we grow into an adult body, we've got a lot of stories, you know, yeah. they're, they're varied. And some of them are very universal, where the themes of them, you know, where my story might look completely different than yours, but there's universal themes mm -hmm. that we would both go, oh, yeah, yeah, I experienced that too. And, um, and so I see these papers, when I bring them together in a collage, as individual fragments of my own stories, and putting them all together is a, like the whole picture of who yeah. I am. So, it, and that works on a larger, you know, like a macro scale for, mm -hmm. for society as well. Yeah. Uh, I like that idea that you were saying about history. And actually, I, that's the word that was in my head as you were talking about it. Because when I look at your collages, I do get that sense because of the ephemera, because of, you know, these old, old papers and, and, uh, I mean, you use, all, you use all kind of different things, um, but I do I get that sense of like a history or um, I don't want, I don't, I don't think nostalgia is the right word, especially after hearing your explanation, but I like that, that notion of, of the fragments of, of the story kind of coming together. And, uh, and the other thing that, that I really liked about what you were saying is that this was not something that you deliberately set out on. And I think a lot of, uh, creative people or a lot of artists have this notion, especially young or inexperienced uh, creatives, have this notion that you get this idea in your head and you sit down and you you bring it to life. And I yeah. think for a lot of artists, it's it's that discovery and that you you find yourself drawn to something and oftentimes you don't know why, but then after you work with it and and experience it and reflect on it, then you you kind of understand like oh. That's yeah. why I'm using it. So that I like that idea of, of history, but also that idea of discovering sort of your path as you were working. Right, right. Allowing it to unfold. And that actually speaks very directly to the way that I teach. Mm -hmm. And it is, um, it can be very challenging to, um, to somebody who comes in with, with a real art background, you know, a formal art background where we go to school and learn that there are rules mm -hmm. governing how we produce the art that we produce. And in that, in that formal setting, oftentimes it does look like having to know what you're creating before you start. Yeah. And so teaching in a way, or even just explaining to somebody that there is this, 
freedom in Mm -hmm. not knowing and that that actually I can produce a um, level of art that I'm much more satisfied with if I let it happen organically. Um, So it's, I'm very passionate about that process. I I run into that kind of uh, issue as well with my teaching because I'm very much like that as well. I don't have, and I tell people, I said, I'm not a project-based teacher. I I teach techniques. I teach about, you know, how you can discover your own voice. And that was really, that was kind of hard whenever I I, uh, co-authored a couple books because they were expecting projects and, and we were like, well, we don't teach projects, but we have all these techniques to share. And so we had to kind of think about it that way. Um, cause I think a lot of, there are a lot of artists out there that are uh, teaching and their students, like they all walk out with something that, you know, looks very similar and it's all kind of yes. the same thing. And, and it's like, yes. okay, that's nice, but where's your voice in it? Where's your voice in it? Exactly. I can totally relate to that. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, um, so yeah, when I say that's a, a process that I'm passionate about, that is the end goal when I teach is not just um, so that somebody has a pretty picture to show for the time they spent in my class, Mm -hmm. but that they have a deeper understanding of who they are and what they're all about and what makes them tick. And that is so connected to the art that we produce Mm -hmm. Um, to me anyway, that it's a a key element. Well, I think, I mean, just from hearing your story, I can see how for you, it sounds like art was that process of you kind of discovering who you were and discovering your yes. voice and discovering those things that were really important to you. And it wasn't about, let me make a pretty picture. Cause you were talking about having that freedom of going into the studio and not having rules. But what I've, what I've noticed with myself and with a lot of other artists that it's that you as the artist start to create your own rules and you start to create like your own process and the things that, that you want to do. Um, but you know, that notion of playing and discovery and, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are just like, oh, I want to make this pretty picture and they don't realize Mm -hmm. like, well, where, where are you in that? You know, if you're just copying somebody else's thing, you know, that's a great way to learn. It really is a great way to learn. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I think it's a great way to learn. And then at some point you have to be like, okay, now what can I take from that? And how can I carry that forward into my own thing? But I think some, a lot of uh, beginning artists are, are, that's where they get stuck. Like a lot of times yeah. they get stuck, like, okay, I've learned these techniques. I've learned these things, but how, how do I make it my own? How do I take it forward? Right. Well, I think that it all boils down to those messages that we carry in our head too. And it is, um, that's why to me, it's, it's impossible to separate myself as a person from myself as an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that is true for all of us, but we just don't recognize it because we come into the studio or into our creative space and we have rules in our head that are not productive rules. And Mm. some of those rules might look like you, Eric, are the professional artist. You're teaching me. I'm just this hobbyist. I'm going to take your class for fun. But then the rule in their head is, um, I am not a professional or I didn't get the training. So I am just always going to be in this lane. Mm -hmm. Um, But the truth is we didn't get to where we're at (laughs) without taking the risks of of letting ourselves fail first or, you know, um, and sometimes it just takes learning confidence right along with learning the the techniques, like learning. It's okay. It's okay to 
to try and fail and try again. Yeah. So you were talking about like you're, you know, teaching your classes and stuff. Do you ever encounter, I'm sure you do, but do you ever encounter those students who, when they share, they have to preface like what they're sharing with, I'm not an artist. Yeah. Or, I don't, I, I'm not, I, this isn't any good, but, um, <laughs> uh, so I mean, I, I encounter that in my classes. So do you encounter those things when you teach? Yes, all the time. And, you know, and I certainly encountered it in my own journey as well. It, it took listening and hearing someone else identify me as an artist before I was able to embrace that title for myself. So I get it when other people have that hesitancy. And it, it does speak to the rules that we, you know, that we have certain criteria that we believe would make us an artist. And it's different for each person, mm -hmm. maybe Maybe this person is believes that being an artist means you always produce something beautiful or always produce something sell worthy or that you have gallery recognition or whatever the case may be. We set ourselves up with these tiers that qualify or disqualify us. And so I, I totally understand where people are coming from. And sometimes it's simply a matter of being told or given permission mm -hmm. to see themselves a different way. Um, and so I love, that's what I love about, about teaching is permission giving, <laughs> you know, just to be able to say like, you can do it and yeah. I believe in you. And, and this is what it looked like. I bring out my early work sometimes now, and it was a process for me to feel comfortable doing that because they're terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like those, if anybody ever saw this, they would, they would yeah. know that I wasn't a real artist. Messages still get in your yeah. head, you know? But um, but we all have that beginning place. Yeah. Well, so. it's it's recognizing that journey and realizing that everyone's at a different part in that journey, and everyone has a totally different journey. So, like even just comparing ourselves to other artists and other people, it can be very detrimental to our art making. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> the comparison trap. Yeah. So you you were really into like the collaging. How did you then? get into the the encaustic was there like what was that was there a point where all of a sudden you're like oh you were aware of encaustic and then decided to try it or what was what, what was that process like it was also one of those um well everything i do is is that organic process but i hadn't um discovered the medium and decided to try it i had a um a lucky find um my mother purchased her childhood home as an adult and uh, was renovating the home and they opened a wall um, in the stairway and behind it was a bundle of love letters and they had been there for 50 or 60 years and or longer and um, they had holes in them they were falling apart they were crumbling uh, because they had been behind the wall so long, probably, you know, moths and mice and time had taken its toll. So mom gave them to me um, and they were just in perfect condition for collage. And so I created a series of four by four collages from those love letters on, um, on little cubes, little canvases and hung them on the wall. I was excited to, you know, to start showing them off. It was during that time that I was shifting my style um, from one, 
you know, from that more whimsical to a little more serious. Um, or it's only, it's, those are labels, the only labels that I have to identify it with. Um, not that using whimsical art isn't a serious art as well, mm -hmm. but I was just shif shifting my style. And once I hung those, that initial set of 16 four by four cubes on my wall, um, they were out from behind the wall where they had been tucked away for so long. And now they're hanging on a wall. Um, the script on the paper, the letters started to fade. And that led me to wanting to find something to preserve that mm. script before it completely disappeared, um, which eventually led me to encaustic. It was, there was just something about them that I knew I wanted a visible, something visible, something tangible as a um a way to preserve and protect it but as another layer to the collage and everything on the market i found completely dissatisfying for what i had pictured in my mind until um until i stumbled upon someone else using encaustic in mm -hmm. their work and so those were the first pieces and initially all i did with encaustic was used it for that top coat to you know i would create my collage work and then I would throw a coat of encaustic over it. Um, it's pretty dramatic sometimes how encaustic will change mm -hmm. the appearance of a collage. And so I was really enjoying that for a long time. And that's all I really did with it for a couple of years. And then eventually I was taking some, some um, junior college classes in um, metal smithing some oil painting classes and just dabbling in different things that i felt like i had missed out on not getting to go to college right after high school so i was treating myself to a, a season of taking just taking whatever workshop or whatever classes um caught my eye and metal smithing was one that just kept my attention i took it four semesters in a row and the instructor was was, was pretty wonderful um all the other students would be working on their tiny little bezel settings with setting their tiny little stones and i would be creating these giant bezel settings with a watch face instead of a stone and putting my collage work behind it and um we had a project that she challenged us to make a spoon and i was not into it at all um, I got to do a mixed media interpretation of everything she assigned, which was wonderful. And I just wasn't into the spoon concept, but I had just taken a workshop by Keith Labou and um, he uses um, the iron uh, rebar wire in his work quite a bit. So I was in the middle of pounding out wire and then I get this assignment from the teacher and suddenly these two mediums came together where I started dipping papers into wax and creating frames um, out of the wire and making jewelry pieces out of them based off this first assignment I had where I created a spoon from the metal as the armature and then using the waxed papers that I was creating from all these old ephemera pieces. Um, and I, I created the symbolic spoon for that first assignment. And out of that grew um, this path that I started exploring, what else can I do with encaustic? Mm -hmm. And um, I tend to break rules 
because I never learned them to begin with <laughs> or because I'm a little bit of a rebel. And when someone tells me I can't do something, then I decide I <laughs> watch me, you know? So, so from that, um, I just really started exploring the medium of encaustic and it's so compatible with paper that I just became super, super passionate about it mm -hmm. as well. So, um, I still have just scratched the tip of the, you know, just what you can do with that medium. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. I'm just kind of thinking and processing and, and kind of thinking where I want to go next with this. Um, yeah. So let's see. So th like thinking about encaustic, um, I've, I was, I've been really intrigued with some of the, the things that you've been doing lately with it. Um, mm -hmm especially because you have a whole series called shields yes um that i find really intriguing and then you've been doing some things with uh with beeswax candles that yes. um i've been really kind of kind of intrigued with so let's start with your shield um series how did that come about um so it started with uh just an exploration of the materials that I had gathered. Um, I'd, I'd been invited to spend a week at a friend's uh, house, who uh, Patricia Baldwin Segerberg, who uh, had originally, I connected with her because she had invited me to teach at a summer camp that she had created called Encosta Camp. Um, back when I was doing those jewelry pieces with the with the dipped waxed papers. So I, I connected with her from at that point and we became friends and eventually she was teaching a workshop in her home, a retreat in her home studio. She invited me to participate and it was all around um, burning things and using <laughs> encaustic. Well, I happened to have just gotten a whole bunch of old barrel staves from a kitchen designer who had a studio in the same building that I did. And the back of these barrel staves are all burned. It's part of the process of creating barrels is they burn um, burn the wood to, I think, to harden it, to age it. I don't know. But um, so I had these individual staves with these charred backings, and I just grabbed a bunch of them and threw them in my car on my way to her house, which was, you know, a seven or eight hour drive from where I lived, and spent this week just um, immersed in the world of encaustic and burning things um, and just thought, you know, I, maybe I'll decide to use these while I'm there since that's the theme. And I sat with them and just started exploring what can I do with these barrel staves and eventually in that process started to see them in my mind as a shape of a shield. If you've ever seen um, like an Aboriginal shield from uh, uh, Australia, they can be really long and skinny, a little bit of an arc to them. And I was seeing the way that I was arranging the papers was just this giving me that sense. And so that's where it started. Um, then I won a fellowship from where my studio is when I was living at the time in Racine, Wisconsin. Um, there's a museum called Racine Art Museum. It's an internationally recognized um, even though it's a small museum, they have the uh, the largest collection of fine art craft 
um, as any museum in North America. So it was a, it's a, it was a really outstanding opportunity to win a fellowship with them. And that came with a solo show in which they encouraged all of the winners. There was four winners every two years. And they encouraged the artists to, um, to get creative in what they're doing, not just creating what they applied to the show with or to the fellowship with, but to explore their own medium even further and to you know, kind of break the barriers. And so with that encouragement to do whatever I wanted with the show, <laughs> I started looking at all these barrel materials. I had the round, um, the rings that come off the barrels and I had a bunch of the staves. And that led me, first I was just going to use these materials. I didn't start out thinking it was going to be shields. I thought that it was going to be something completely different, mm -hmm. which goes back to what we were talking about earlier and how um, difficult it is for me actually to, to have a theme and to work towards that thing <laughs> um, rather than letting the, the materials start tell, telling me what they want to be. And so I was taking notes and I would get ideas. I would wake up with ideas in the middle of the night. So I kept a note um, open on my iPhone all the time. And I would just throw in whatever thoughts I had and um, was in the midst of a transitional year in my life. And I thought that the, originally the concept was going to be about walking through difficult things and that these round barrels rings were going to be like portals mm. that you would see these little glimpses of what I was walking through, what I was experiencing and that they would be filled with these collages. And that was my original intent. And as I started creating them more and more and more of them just started resembling shields to the point where I stepped, sat back and thought, what are these shields trying to tell me? Why are, you know, why do I keep getting this impression? And that is typical of how work evolves for me is I will work on it on a conscious level while all this stuff is happening on what I call the intuitive level or what is actually our subconscious level. And the information is stored inside of us. Um, if we just give it the freedom to rise without forcing it, that's what winds up happening. And so as I'm working without trying to dictate too much, what I wanted these to be, shields started rising. And what I recognized was that what they represent for me is what a lot of people call the masks that we wear. Mm -hmm. So it's simply the same, same thing as wearing a mask, but looking at it as walking through life, carrying shields to protect our really vulnerable spots inside. And we all have them. We adapt to our early conditioning. We adapt to experiences in school. We adapt to our groups that we belong to by wearing masks sometimes because we feel vulnerable and we feel oftentimes no matter what your background is people we walk into these new experiences feeling maybe inadequate maybe like we're faking it you know um even if you look at studies with uh ceos um, they call it imposter syndrome mm -hmm. and how many CEOs will say they feel like they're faking it and yeah. they're about to be you know, found out. Well, that's you know, a universal feeling. And the way we adapt to that is what the shields represented to me. So it was, um, there were shields 
of adaption. Uh, one of them I called chameleon. Um, it was about how I felt like I could fit into different groups by changing who I was um, so that I would be accepted. Um, and the real, you know, the, the ironicy of that is that you may fit in by changing who you are, but you don't really belong. You're not really yeah. making connections. So I looked at those shields as not only ways to protect myself, but they were dysfunctional ways to protect myself because they were keeping me from having the real connections that I desired yeah. in my relationships. And so it was all about putting down these dysfunctional shields. And now I'm looking at them more as like, okay, we put down these dysfunctional shields. Which ones do I want to pick up? You know, which ones do I want to move towards? What do I actually want to be? And mm -hmm. who do I actually, you know, and so um, it's almost like a, sh a skin now instead yeah. of a shield. So. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of thinking about like, we, we still need to protect ourselves. We still need to have our boundaries. We still need to, to, to sort of, um, have those, sh have certain shields. So I can kind of, yeah. Yeah. And there's a, a thing, um, a quote by Brene Brown that I really connect to about that. And she talks about how the difference is, um, that when we armor up is what she calls it. Mm -hmm. When we armor up, um, we keep ourselves from having true connections. And what we really need to strive for is having, she calls it strong back, uh, soft front, strong back. So we have our boundaries, but not in a way that keeps us from having relationships yeah. and that, and having true connections. And so, um, and for me, you know, that uh, art is just so connected um, to relationship. I just don't know how to separate them. Don't yeah. think I would ever want to. Yeah. I, I, I explore the notion of connection a lot in my, in my art. It might not be always evident uh, from when people look at it, but um, I, that's how I connect with other people is through my art. It's through sharing my art. It's teaching art. It's interviewing artists for the podcast. So yeah, yeah I, I get that idea of, of connecting, uh, not just connecting with the art, but connecting with people. And, right. the, and understanding those relationships through art. Right, right. I think that, you know, we're just, we're, we're humans and we're wired for connection. Yeah. And yet we're not always equipped to understand yeah. how connections work. Yeah. So art has been an incredible tool for me to, to start to get a deeper understanding of what that looks like yeah. and what I want it to look like in my own life. <laughs> so. So continuing with this idea of connection, um, you've been doing some other pieces now, like I mentioned before with using beeswax candles. And mm -hmm. when, when I see those, I mean, just personally, I, I, I feel like, uh, there's a spiritual connection to that, to that work. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm correct in assuming that, but, um, would you talk about those works a little bit? The candle started, um, by, the acquisition the the series with the candles started by the acquisition of the candles themselves mm -hmm. so back in january i had a, a group of artist friends who came up to my studio and up to racine we rented an airbnb and spent a week together um and one of those artists was a, an artist that you've already interviewed mm -hmm. amanda jolly 
So Amanda lives next door to a church um, and believe it's a Greek, or Greek Orthodox church. I'm not 100% sure, but it is an Orthodox church where they use the candles. You know, you mm -hmm. go in and you light a candle um, and pray and, and it's a part of their service. And so um, that church had had a small fire and had to dispose of a lot of the things that were not really damaged, but had some smoke damage. And in order for their insurance um, monies to be properly distributed, they were not allowed to keep anything that was designated mm. as having been damaged in that fire. Mm. And in that process, they told Scott and Amanda, Scott, uh, Amanda's husband, um, to, you know, they were welcome to anything they saw out in the dumpster <laughs> in the alley, you know, that they, that they wanted, yeah. if they could salvage anything. And of course, Amanda's an artist, so she, she has a great eye. And she, um, she brought in all these bags of, of the candles. And so when she came up for that week together, she bought, bought three hefty bags full. Oh, wow. Hefty, the giant, you know, the industrial <laughs> that's size. A, that's a lot of candles. Bags. That's a lot of candles. And um, I was in the middle of making my shields uh, still, you know, not in the middle, but I was still exploring that yeah. concept. And so right away, I wanted to create a shield with the candles. And that mm -hmm. was my first piece. Um, I have a picture of it on, I think my Instagram account where I'm holding this long I, skinny barrel. And it's I think lit, I may, so. I think I may have uh, used that, um, that image on my blog post that I did. Oh, okay. I can't remember, but I, I do remember that picture. Cause I was like, that's a really cool picture. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. I really, um, that's one of the things about working from a home studio. That's more limiting is the, <laughs> you know, the ability to light things on fire i guess but, um, <laughs> i'm still managing it here, here in my home studio um but that that's what started it and then um yeah the the fact that they've come from a church that they were can to me everything that i bring into my studio to work with typically is salvaged and i look at these things and i know that they carry the essence of whoever they belong to or whoever's hands they've passed through um, in, before me. And I see it as this like invisible thread of connection. And so just to begin with the fact that these candles were held in somebody's hand who had a prayer request or had someone else on their heart and they put it in this, they're, they're like these tables of sand like a child would play at, you know, mm -hmm. but they put their candle in the sand at the beginning of the service and light it. Um, and then the bees or yeah, the beeswax just pulls into the sand and creates these really cool shapes. I've got some of those too. <laughs> um, but the fact that it carries the essence to me of that spirituality of whoever was using it to pray over. Um, and that for me, spirituality is a big part of who I am. It looks a little different now than it used to, but it's, you know, it's growing mm -hmm. and evolving just like I am as a person. So it is a nod to that part of my life. And I do see my time in my studio sometimes as the way that I pray and the way that I worship. Um, I connect here in my studio to that side of me more than any place else in my life. Um, you know, for one reason or another, I've had various church experiences that have been deeply wounding, but 
but I've also had various spiritual experiences that have really confirmed for me that um, for who, you know, to me, God is real. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a in the church doors experience. It's, it's, um, it's personal for each one of us. Mm -hmm. And for me, that looks like the place I connect the most is my studio. And it took me a while to finally embrace that. Yeah. You know? And so when I do light some of those candles on the work, um, I feel like I am offering my own prayers in combination with the person who that candle <laughs> was lit by to yeah. begin with. And that whoever purchases the work afterwards, then um, it's like this trifecta, you know, this <laughs> threefold and it's complete with yeah. the person who gets to then enjoy the finished piece, that they are a part of the story as much as yeah. the, the artist and the person who owned the candle to begin with. So. Yeah, I, I'm just, I, I'm loving this kind of this, the like you were talking about that connective thread, um, but how how deep like art can be. I think a lot of uh, people like, are getting into art, they look at the pretty picture, the pretty project, and they're like, oh, I want to make that. And they don't, realize like the depth that that of thought and reflection that can actually go into into art so just kind of hearing you talk about that just like I was like wow that's just really kind of a cool cool way of of describing all those connections um, because I, I I don't think people realize how art and creating allows us to connect connect different things. And I think that's what mm -hmm. creativity is about is, is being able to, to make connections that, that we don't necessarily see at the time, but then as we work, these ideas kind of come, come about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I'm curious, you had mentioned writing and I, I know you have a blog and you, uh, you write a lot on that. Um, do you, do any kind of journaling or, I mean, you were talking about having your notes app open whenever you were doing your shields and stuff, but is writing mm -hmm. still a, a big part of, of your creative process? Yeah, it, it is. I, I do. Um, I probably got about 20 years worth of journals in my studio right now. Um, the thing is that is surprising for a lot of people is I've never really been able to get into art journaling. Mm -hmm. Um, when I write, I write. And when I art, I art. And it's hard for me um, because I think part of my routine is I wake up in the morning. The first thing I do is make my coffee and go back to bed and I read and I journal. And so because I'm sitting in bed while I'm doing my journaling, um, it's a little challenging to bring art supplies into that mix. Um, when I, sometimes I will, you know, like drip watercolor paint or you know, do something on my pages in advance. Um, it has to be, I have to be in the right frame of mind. Mm -hmm. But the journaling part, the writing part is for me a way of processing. I process with words. And I also process with my, I look at the materials that I use in the studio very similarly to words. So I'm processing and I'm working things out and I'm putting these ideas down and then I'm seeing them reflecting back to me and all of a sudden light bulbs will go off. Mm -hmm. And that's what writing is for me. It's a tool to help me connect to what's inside of me that I haven't necessarily been able to put my finger on in any other way. 
And then I also see it as a, um, another art form. And so I will tell short stories about, you know, this is what this art is about. Or uh, my most recent one that I published was a poem, a really long poem. <laughs> but it was, um, it was my response to some of the helpless feelings, of, you know, with what's going on in mm -hmm. our world at this moment. Um, and so it is just another way for me to, to process and use my voice then in mm -hmm. a way that I feel like is more powerful than just, I mean, I do it. I, I get caught up in the Facebook posting, just like everybody else sometimes, depending on what's happening. And I do think that it's, there's a responsibility involved in using our voices when there are such huge things going on in our mm -hmm. world. Um, but for me, the most powerful way that I can do that is through art and my and writing artistically mm -hmm. so it's not just a little it's not just adding to the noise yeah yeah so so you're bringing up you know we're we're, we're going through such a un, unprecedented I know everyone kind of uses that term but unprecedented in time so let's kind of take both of these big things that have been going on um so first of all with the pandemic I mean what yeah. Uh, I know a lot of artists have been struggling through the pandemic. Some some artists have been uh, feeling energized and and really have been able to kind of dedicate time to creating. Other artists are feeling kind of paralyzed because of everything that's going on. Um, how have you been like, uh, I don't know if deal, to say dealing with the pandemic, but how has the pandemic affected you and your art and your creating? In all of those ways. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, we're humans. And, um, and so I think that in any given day, at any given moment, we can experience such a wide range. And, um, and so to narrow down what my response has been to just one thing would be impossible. Some <laughs> days I'm paralyzed and I can't get off the couch. Yeah. Um, early on, especially when we were all just kind of adjusting to this strange new thing happening, I would catch myself standing in the kitchen, staring into a cabinet and not knowing how long have I been standing here? <laughs> what am I even doing in here? And so um, my responses ran the gamut, the gamut of, of emotions from um, completely energized. So like you had said before, I'm like, I hopped off the plane from my last in-person workshop, which was in San Diego. And it was scheduled right at the beginning of the whole pandemic happening. So there was a lot of back and forth conversation with that host between about like, what do we even do? Are we going to go forward with this? Well, there was no stay at home mandate. There was only very little information starting to trickle out. We decided to go ahead and do it. And I'm really glad that I had mm -hmm. that chance because that workshop was pretty incredible. And I came back, it wasn't just the workshop, it was the host and her husband, um, Janet and, and Jeff Freedom, Freeman, and they own Way Art Yonder Studios out in San Diego, California. And um, they, you know, they had me stay with them. It's the third time I've taught there. So I knew them as friends at this point. Um, but just the conversations around the dinner table with them at night and the workshop all served to just be so super energizing and inspiring mm -hmm. to me that I couldn't even wait till I got home um, 
I, I jumped on and did my first live video <laughs> on my Facebook from the airport yeah. in San Diego. And that, um, that was just this momentum that started this daily jumping on. And then I decided to do this workshop it turned into this free workshop i thought it was going to be like a day and that turned into mm -hmm. like six um six different sessions and it went so deep i had um over 500 people register and sign up and join you know and then even more have trickled into my group since then yeah. um so that was pretty energizing to begin with and it helped me and and other people were saying like that was a lifeline to them mm -hmm. Um, to have this productive outlet, um, artistic outlet, in the midst of this crazy new thing that we were all experiencing <laughs> together. And, um, and then at the same time, in between those days, I could go through extreme depression, extreme disorientation. Um, it was just everything, mm. you know, so up and down, up and down. And I, I don't think that that's unique to me. I think that we've all kind of experienced some ups and downs yeah. in the midst of it. It's just impossible not to. It's <laughs> this daily whirlwind of yeah. information and, and new things to deal with. Yeah. I know for me at the beginning, it was, in a way, it was kind of energizing because I, I went from having a very busy spring scheduled and everything was getting canceled then all of a sudden that opened up a lot of space yeah. and i you know like you i jumped on and started doing some live streaming and and uh you know ended up doing a lot of online teaching a lot of online classes and now it's like okay we're in the fifth month of it and it's like it's you know things were seemed like they were getting better and now it seems like yeah. they're getting worse and so it's right. like how much longer is that going to go and then we have the whole racial crisis, every, you know, the protests and everything coming out on top of that. And right. I know on Facebook, you've been very vocal with, uh, with your support of that. Yes. Um, and you talked about art being a place that you process. Are you finding that you're processing the pandemic and all this ra racial strife in your art? Or is it? Yeah. Definitely. Um, one of the pieces that I created, I'm going to grab it really quick, if you don't mind, yeah. just to talk off of it. For the workshop, I'm currently um, getting ready to teach for under Ivy Newport's. The technology part is killing me, but i um, excited about the class. But this one came about, again, organically. Um, I know that people listening on a podcast won't be able to see it, <laughs> but you can just have a visual of what I'm yeah. talking about. And it started out just exploring the process of printmaking, the monoprint print. So this is a print that I made from um, a magazine image. And, um, and so it started out just in that place of knowing I'm creating this workshop. I need to, you know, create these mm -hmm. samples, but I can never just create something and be detached from it. And so even though this is a sample for a specific workshop, it also became, um, for me, a catalyst to a new direction that I'm excited about. And I think that I'm going to connect it to my Shield series somehow. But as I created her, she was a, um, a black woman. Um, I was using a Vogue magazine, which I actually happened to have. <laughs> I went back out and bought another copy of it because I loved that image so much. And as you know, when you mono print, you get one. It's one yeah. off. And... Um, and so I had to go out and buy 
another coffee so that I would have uh, to have it to try creating something else with it. Mm -hmm. But I was really excited when I bought this Vogue magazine to see that it was so diverse because Mm -hmm. fashion magazines by and large have always been pretty much geared towards white women with white faces and, you know, white products. Um, as most of our society has been created for. Um, and so this particular issue was extremely diverse. I was so excited about it. And when I pulled this print, um, this woman, it was, I could barely, I mean, you're, I'm, I was running the video camera. So I kind of had to contain <laughs> my response. Keep your composure. Like I wanted to just jump up and down with joy. It yeah. was just so awesome. And as I started to piece it together, I realized this woman has this strength to her. And this piece started to feel like she was, it was speaking about the strength of the black community in the midst of the horrible things that they've had to endure in our country. And, um, and so to begin with, I started to see the elements that I was bringing in. There's a blueprint here. And behind her, the, the, she's printed on tracing paper, so it's translucent. And so what I put behind her was a page that, um, that Jana Freeman from Way Out Yonder had given me out of a book about typography. And she gave it to me because it had this uh, cross symbol in it. She knew that that was a symbol that I connect to, especially the cross that's like the red cross, like a plus sign, mm-hmm. very even and yeah. um, Uh, I put that behind the image of this woman and noticed next to her head afterwards, and this is usually how art speaks to me. I just create visually, and then I start to see all the connections that are in the piece, and that's how I start to understand what this work was about, that intuitive process. But the word behind her head right next to her says invisible, and it's talking Mm. about the typography but just that word invisible that's barely noticeable behind this this um, woman's head who is a black woman and realizing like that is by and large how in our country i believe that we have never really there's never really been a true sense of equality it's just mm-hmm. been like okay you're, you're equal now but you're still go over here and don't make noise yeah be invisible and we can put up with you if you're invisible yeah they don't get to express the fullness of who they are and yet as a white woman that i have always believed is my right like to learn who i am to express who i am and then to start looking at this whole community of people who have had that right stripped away and um and then denied that it ever happened that that experience ever happened and how relevant it still is today not something that happened hundreds of years ago so um, my wiring, I've always been bent towards social justice. Um, part of my background growing up being very aware that my family system was also very co- covert racism, you know, was part of my background. And being very intentional as I raised my own children to do things differently. Yeah. So if I bought them dolls, 
they got all the dolls, not just the white dolls, yeah. you know, Barbies. They got all the all the races of Barbies, not just the white ones. I just and we lived in diverse neighborhoods, you know, we just I wanted them to have a different experience. And so this year has been startling for a lot of us who've not had to live under that mm -hmm. kind of inequality yeah. or that injustice to uh, to realize like suddenly in 2020 that racism still exists and mm -hmm. we all thought that having a black president solved all that <laughs> <laughs> many of us yeah. so yeah that that um it's a very important to me um, and I'm in this place of just trying to figure out like what next, how do I connect? Yeah. Um, so I've been having some conversations and some projects going on that I'm kind of excited about. Um, but I kind of see myself as a bridge and mm -hmm. a bridge maker because I always find that I wind up be being in between two spaces. So that would look like having a Christian background and no longer identifying with what is predominantly thought of as, you know, the evangelical Christians today, um, I just don't identify with. Mm -hmm. And so that group by and large started to shun me, especially within the art world. I had made friends based on the fact that we were all artists and we were all Christians and we had formed groups and we had done these incredible fun things together. And then the more that I started understanding that the social justice piece was so important to me that it dictated the political group that I affiliate with mm -hmm. because to me, there's certain things that I identify more. So I'm a Democrat and I'm a Christian and both worlds look at me sometimes suspiciously, Yeah. right? Because we like to divide in this, in this world. Like we like to meet categories and I've never really yeah. fit in those. Yeah. I don't think anybody really does, but we, we, you know, it's a sense of belonging to put ourselves into a category yeah. and we don't understand who we are we have to have yeah. these neat categories. So a couple of years ago, I started a series called It's, it's Not All Black and White. And it really is about those in-between places that are mm -hmm. where most of us fall. Yeah. But we still try to categorize, you know, mm -hmm. so. Well, it's, it's that notion of, of uh, being able to simplify and so that like, oh, well, I can't be friends with you or I can't relate to you because you're in this category. And mm -hmm. like you said, like that idea of black and white, it's like, no, it's not all black and white, but we do that because then it's, I could put you in that little box and you in that little box. And then by and putting that- And never the two should come together. Yeah. 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 Well, and it, it's, it's that notion like, you know, I can slap a label on you and then mm -hmm. I think I know everything there is to know about you. Because right, it's of just that another way to feel safe. Yeah. Right. It's another shield. It is exactly right. Yeah. It is exactly right. And so when I look at myself as being a bridge, it really comes back to that thing that you said about connections. Mm -hmm. And like, how do we connect? How do we stop fighting and how do we connect? Well, some people just aren't ready. Yeah. And that's fine. 
so I, I've started to really realize like my audience, the people that I'm speaking to are the people who are ready. They just don't know how. Yeah. And that maybe I have something to share about what I discovered in that process that will help other people too. Cause I'm not an expert. I have no, <laughs> no voice of authority in the matter. Yeah. I'm just stumbling along trying to figure things out and then sharing how I, you know, where I scrape my knees and dirty my elbows in the yeah. process, you know? And, and so. I think that's, I think that's what we all do. You know, I think that's, you know, we live our lives and, you know, as artists, we make our art and then, you know, people see something in, in our art or in what we do and they connect with it. And it's like, well, I'll share with you. I don't know. I don't know everything, you know, and it's, yeah. I, I've noticed that in a lot of the stuff that I do, people ask me questions and I'm like, well, this is maybe how I would deal with it, but I'm not sure how you would, you know, it's like, I'm yeah. not, we're in different situations, but I can give you some advice. Like you said, I can show you how I've scraped my knees. I can show you how I've fallen down. I can tell you how yeah. I've resolved this and, and come to it, but I can't. Yeah. I think, I think seeing ourselves as, as experts, sometimes that's when we get ourselves into trouble. It's a danger zone. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that is actually, when you're speaking of shields, that is a big one for yeah. a lot of us. And it is one for me too, that feeling that you have to know the answer or you will be seen or found out as a phony. Yeah. Um, and it's just not true. It's just a vulnerable, uncomfortable feeling to admit, I don't know. I don't know. I don't yeah. know the answer to this, but let's find out together. Yeah. You know, I'll show you how I managed to get where I'm at. Yeah. And maybe your path will look different. But what I can tell you is that it's okay to fail and it's okay to try and it's okay to get up and start again. Yeah. I mean, my whole life has been <laughs> trying and falling and failing and getting up and wiping off yeah. the dirt and trying again. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. so th thinking of this notion of trying again, I know that you just recently closed your studio and now you, your studio is exclusively in your home. So now all of a sudden it's like, you've had to pivot, you've had to shift. Um, what, what has that process been like? Um, very painful. <laughs> so it's not completely closed. Um, it is closed to at the moment. So what that looked like originally was, I already knew I was in the, in the a major shift with the studio. I thought that it was going to be a different kind of shift before the pandemic hit. And so where I was at was I'm in a building with um, over 60 other artists who have studios there. And it's, it's a pretty fabulous space. It's an old warehouse. We all have like the sliding barn doors. <laughs> it's got the whole, you know, the charisma, the vibe. It's all there. Um, and, and being able to work in a place where you can walk out in the hallway and go down, you know, to the common area and chat with another artist is pretty exciting. Where I was shifting was that understanding that for me, there's a strong sense of wanting a community, a like-minded people and the place of bringing people to the table and doing that permission giving. Mm -hmm. And so I started to conceive, um, let's just say like throw in there, it happened because uh, for one thing, there's this um, dream that I had 15 years ago, like a oh, daydream, but it was very real. And I was walking through an old school building with this huge estate sale happening and started to picture this community 
where artists would have their own studios and there were these common rooms like the gymnasium with a stage in it. It was really incredible. And how cool it would be to have this art community space open to a community that might not be exposed to art or artists in any other way. And, um, and so that dream over the last 15 years has started to um, evolve and shift to the point where, the, where I was at in the last year was really understanding um, that what I wanted to create was something of a co-working studio mm-hmm. where people could just subscribe and come in and use the studio space as, um, as their studio if they didn't have the ability to have one on their own or didn't have the space in their own house. But I also wanted it to be able to support the a community around it. So it was really important that I was looking for an environment where the neighborhood might not have the opportunities for people to connect with art, um, you know, in a mm-hmm. poorer neighborhood or someplace where, where I could open the doors on certain days and say, um, this is your day to mm-hmm. kind of create and that the, the rest of the, you know, the program would support that. So the subscriptions, people who could afford and could join um, would be supporting that community outreach part. So I was in the process of looking for a location for that and, and kind of fleshing out what exactly it was that I felt I was suited for and what I'm starting to see is not my strong suits and how to bring it all together when the pandemic hit. And so I had already um, invited, I had just invited a couple of other artists. I'd put out, you know, put out the word that I'm looking for studio mates at that point and had just taken on two other artists to share my studio space with me while I looked for a new, new location. Um, just to share the rent, share the space, start to get a feel for what it was like to have other people in the space all the time. <laughs> and, um, and then the pandemic hit. So we didn't even get to really develop any kind of relationship or anything like that. And because I have such a risky chronic illness packaging health-wise, I have to be very, very careful about where I'm letting myself take risks with Mm -hmm. being exposed to this virus. I knew right away that I had to stay home and work on my own studio. But I had already been in the process of setting up a home studio to give myself a place that was just for me as I started looking for a community space. So that was a good thing because it helped me to start working right away that I had started setting up the mm-hmm. studio. Um, in the interim, let's see, I, the space that I'm currently in or was currently in up in Racine, I had taken over two studios and had a wall knocked down between them. I had that wall put back up and I moved everything that I have there to one side. The two artists that joined me um, are now sharing the other side so that they can keep working. Mm -hmm. And if I do go in there, I don't have to worry about, you know, working in the same space with somebody I have no control over who they've been exposed to or who they've been around. Um, 
And I believed at the beginning of this that I was just going to completely close my studio up there and then wait and see what next thing mm -hmm. came up. Um, in that process, I realized I have too many things to bring home. <laughs> and, you know, there's no way to, for me to just safely do like a giant estate, a giant sale. Yeah. I have given away and sold a lot of my furniture. But when it came down to it, I realized I just couldn't let go of this dream that I have mm. of someday having a, a space outside of my home. And so now I'm, I'm going to be slowly working on still um, eliminating a lot of the things that I need to get rid of. I'll have small sales here and there, probably online. And at the same time, deciding what's staying and what's important enough for me to pay for storage. Yeah. And because the studio spaces up there are so outrageously inexpensive, I will probably wind up just continuing to rent that one side until I find something different. Um, because, you know, now I have a minimal amount of rent based, you know, mm -hmm. since I'm only taking, it was the side that I'm on is less than half the two spaces okay. combined. And I also realized that there are just certain things that I can't do in my home studio. And so I really, if I'm going to keep working large or if I'm going to keep working with things like <laughs> candles burning, you know, <laughs> especially lots of candles burning, <laughs> lots of candles burning at once. I need that larger space yeah. so I can't completely let go, but I also can't really go up there and work right now. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of in limbo. So it's, um, it's a, it's a dream on hold. And it's also a dream that I'm waiting to see what the next step looks yeah. like. So sounds like an exciting dream. <laughs> frustrating it's exciting and a frustrating <laughs> yeah well After i mean 15 it's years yeah i mean so many things now just are on hold Every, and yeah. and with the resurgence of of uh virus cases and things like more stuff is being canceled and so yes. it's yeah, yeah. I, i'm getting to the point where you know five months into it i'm starting to feel a bit stir crazy even though i've been able to go out and um uh i i manage a local art center and I've been able to do a little bit of stuff there but for the most part I've been home working from home for the last five months so um you know and we're artists so we're already used to working alone <laughs> yeah but it was shocking to me with this thing to realize how much I did interact with other people yeah. and how much I missed it because I'm yeah. an introvert so I'm kind of wired to being home alone <laughs> <laughs> but then I didn't realize how much I depended on those small bits of interaction down the hallway or you know, yeah. whatever the case may be. So looking for ways to stay connected has definitely been a challenge. Yeah. Um, like I said, we're getting grateful for the online connections. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. I've been really enjoying my, the online classes that I've been teaching because it's a way for me to connect with people. And the nice thing is that, you know, it's, people that maybe haven't been able to take a workshop with me because it hasn't been in their, in their location. And so I've had yes. a lot of people from all over come and take classes. So it's like, Oh, that's really cool to be able to, to right. be in my home in Virginia and connect with somebody in Hawaii or over in right. England. And so, yeah. Um, yes. And, and they don't, not only that, and they, you know, the people who haven't taken your class cause they couldn't afford a hotel like mm -hmm. on top of the class yeah. expenses so it's just a, a lot more uh, opportunities for people 
who um, haven't been able to take classes. Um, I'm especially enjoying the teaching live format. Yeah. Um, my hangup for teaching online has always been technology, but also that I thrive in my in-person classes on the back and forth exchange between yeah. the students and the you know the participants. I don't like yeah. to call them students because I, I see everybody as peers and yeah, they're just at different experience yeah. levels in the arts. So the participants that come in and the exchange of information and ideas and the connections that happen in that setting are so important to me um, that I didn't know how I was going to manage to hang on to that with yeah. online teaching. So jumping online and doing that first live Facebook workshop was so exciting. And that, for, for that reason, yeah. um, a lot of reasons, but for that reason of realizing how connected I actually do feel to people who take the classes when it's live. Yeah. On, you know, online live. So. And, and I think a lot of people appreciate that too, because then it's like, it, this is all unfolding in real time. It's not, oh, I had to redo this three times and because, you know, yeah. I had to edit it and all that kind of stuff. And also I think with the, with the live stuff is that people like to have that, that schedule, like, oh, I'm, I'm scheduling myself to take this class, even though like for me, I record my classes so right. that people can watch them later. And I have a whole bunch of people who, for whatever reason, don't make the live classes and watch the videos. Um, yes. But I think there's a whole bunch of people that they appreciate like, okay, at this time, this day, I have a class and I'm going to show up to it. Right. And, I was actually surprised at the number of people who want that part, like the yeah. structure in their classes. I sign up for online workshops and I will take them three months later. <laughs> sit down after it's already been live. I'm watching the video finally yeah. getting, but I sign up for them because I know I want them. Yeah. I just have a schedule that winds up preventing me from participating. I'm a different student than I am a teacher. Yeah. I really like the interaction um, when I'm teaching. But when I take workshops, even when I teach online and location, I explain to my students, like I would be the student at the table who only walks out with a quarter of the project done because mm -hmm. it takes me longer to kind of process. I have to absorb, I have to watch, I have to watch what other people are doing. And then I have to go home and work on it in the privacy of my yeah. own space. And so I, I like to share that when I'm teaching because you get this range of that comparison trap where someone's mm -hmm. sitting at the table with 10 things done. And they made it look effortless and like they could have taught the class. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're next to a person who has half a thing done, who's feeling more and more and more insecure about their process yeah. because they're next to the, you know. And so I always like to share with students that I'm the one at the table with half a project done. So don't feel intimidated <laughs> if that's what your speed yeah. is. Like we just have, we have to adapt to what our yeah. own and accept that stuff about ourselves you know, our own unique way of learning and and growing mm -hmm. and what i find interesting is that a lot of the students online tell me that they like the idea that they are in their own studio their own space and they don't have other people because they do get in that comparison trap um, right but then they also uh miss that sharing too so it's kind of like it's it's a double-edged yes. sword it's like okay it yes really you're is. you're in your own space but then you can't look over and get inspiration from that person because they're doing something really cool 
And exactly. I, I keep telling my students, I said, you know, that's the one thing I don't like about online is I don't get a chance to walk around and see what everybody's doing because yeah. I find I get as much inspiration, if not more inspiration from my students than as they get from me. Absolutely. So I'm always like, wow, how'd you do that? Or, you know, it's like you, you see what they do and you're just like, I never would have thought of doing it that way. And right. Um, so it, it's that's, one of the reasons why when they ask for feedback, I don't give specific feedback. Mm -hmm. I mean, I teach that intuitive process so I can tell you what I'm sensing about yeah. your work, but you're the artist. Yeah. So what are you sensing about your work? So that, that is one of the things about that intuitive process, but, but yeah, the, um, the flip side of not having the comparison next to you is, is that you don't get to experience the, you know, sometimes the person feeling more and more insecure, all it takes is for someone across the table to look at their half done project and tell them something fabulous that mm -hmm. they see in it that goes, Oh, wow, really? You saw that in my work, <laughs> you know? And then I also encourage the other participants that you can always find something positive to say. Yeah. And understand, like, this person may not have the experience that you have, but that doesn't mean they need your critique. Yeah. I mean, I think that people thrive more with that positive, you can do it kind of mm -hmm. encouragement than they do with the, like, let's tear this person's work apart and make them feel terrible about themselves yeah. so that they can grow. Like, that's not how, <laughs> not how growth actually works, it you know. And unfortunately, if you go to art school, that's how a lot of critiques are. Like, you know, they tear you apart. Yeah. And it's, and I always tell my students, whether when I was teaching public school or uh, teaching adults, <clears throat> that, you know, always talking about some of the strengths that you see, like, oh, I really like this. And then um, thinking of it not as a criticism or a critique, but thinking about like, oh, you might want to think about. And right. that as a, as a, as a more of a, a thing to to ponder and maybe um, to to try, but not like oh you have to do it this way or you know uh, trying. Right. I, I always hate the fact that a lot of people think critique means criticism, and it's exactly like, exactly, and and that's how I approach it as well. Eric is, I can look at someone's work and I can say, this part right here is is super strong, and I'm really appreciating this part right here but they seem to be competing with each other. Mm -hmm. And so there needs to be a resolution, you know, for that yeah. to flow cohesively. So that's where I would focus if I were in your seat is how do I get these two pieces to start to, you know, and, and that will help someone to start looking at it with objectivity instead of feeling ashamed that they didn't get it right. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like, Oh no, I'm just a loser who can't work <laughs> like everyone else does, yeah. you know? Um, so I don't know, for me, that's just the way it, I thrive more. So it's the way that I teach, yeah. you know, so. Yeah. so, well, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up with uh, kind of one more question for you. Um, so thinking about some of, I mean, you, you've taught a lot, so you probably have lots of experience with this, but giving somebody an, uh, some advice. So maybe somebody that just needs some words of encouragement about their art making or their creating? Like, do you have any kind of, just some simple advice to share with people to kind of encourage them or, you know, help help kind of move them along? Um, the biggest thing that I think I could say is 
um, you can't make good art if you don't make bad art to begin with. You just have to give yourself permission to try. And like I said, to begin with my early journey, if I, when I show my very first collage compared to where I'm at now, you wouldn't think that it was the same artist. And what helped me, the advice that it wasn't even advice, it was just a story of sitting in one of those classes I took at that community college was digital photography because I wanted to learn Photoshop. And it was the only class on the curriculum that involved Photoshop that semester. So I signed up for this digital photography class um, with no desire to be a photographer whatsoever. But the instructor one day told us a story about um, a famous photographer who had passed away and that um, when they went in to clean out his estate, his studio, there were hundreds of rolls of undeveloped film. And when they developed all of that film, there was maybe a dozen um, images that would have been considered show worthy or what was his typical mm -hmm. show worthy style. And the instructor was telling us the story to tell us you have to take hundreds of actual photographs to get the winning shot. Yeah. And for me, listening to that was like this, the clouds parted and the sun started, <laughs> you know, it was like the angels are singing like, Wah! because it was like, oh, it's okay to make a lot of really bad art. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that is just an unavoidable. No one is born. There's, there's really no such thing as a child prodigy. There's just, you know, children who have supportive parents who, I mean, I take that back, you know, people who have been child prodigy, but they also have parents who just immerse them in the art and let them develop their style very early mm -hmm. on. Well, some of us didn't get that early on. Um, they still spent hours and hours and hours practicing to become a prodigy you don't just wake up and start playing the piano like beethoven you know <laughs> yeah. or shooting photographs like ansel adams there's hours and hours and hours of practice in there and so for me it's it's all about giving yourself permission to try to fail and keep going and keep pressing forward and um and enjoying it enjoy the process you don't have to love every single thing you make, yeah. but love what you do. <laughs> I think that's some great advice. So, um, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking some time to, to sit here and talk with me. And it's been great finally getting to meet you someday yeah. we'll, when all this stuff is over and it's safe again, we'll actually have to meet in person. Right. Definitely. Definitely. It was been a real pleasure getting to know you as well. Well, thank you Online, so much. Putting faces and voices to names. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, what an awesome interview. I am so grateful that Crystal took some time out of her schedule to sit down and talk with me. Um, I just I really enjoyed kind of going really deep into her journey and into her work and I really loved hearing how how she makes those connections between her art and her life and and how she uses her art to process and to um, just sort of you know 
bring ideas and bring things together. So I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you got a lot out of this interview and make sure you go and check out Crystal's work. It's awesome. If you haven't seen it, you definitely need to see it. So thank you so much for joining me once again for Artistic Accomplices. I've been your host, Eric Scott, and as always, happy creating. Thank you.